Hello, I'm Tony Collins. This is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. This week, I'm going to continue last week's theme and look at the individual career of one of the true pioneers of rugby league, Wally MacArthur, the first Aboriginal Australian rugby league player to play for an English club. But our starting point is the fact that Wally's place in history should have actually belonged to another player. In fact, the first Aboriginal player to come to England should have been Frank Fisher, the grandfather of Olympic gold medalist Cathy Freeman. King Fisher, as he was nicknamed in Queensland, played at standoff for Wide Bay against the 1936 British Lions. Lions captain Gus Risman was so impressed he told Frank that when he returned home to Salford, he would recommend that the club sign him. True to his word, Salford sent a contract to Frank a few weeks later. Frank then approached the Queensland government for permission to move to Salford, but they refused to allow him to go to England. But why should an adult man have to ask permission to work in another country? Because, until the late 1960s, Aboriginal Australians were controlled by their state's so-called protector of Aborigines. In other words, they had no human rights. They were not allowed to vote, nor to marry whites, and were not even included in the national census. Their lives were entirely controlled by the government. Since the early 1900s, and in some cases before that, most Australian states have pursued a policy of taking the children of interracial relationships from their mothers and placing them in care. Kidnapped at the age of five or six, most never saw their mothers again for decades, if at all. Those boys and girls became known as the Stolen Generation. Wally MacArthur was one of those children. Born on the 1st of December 1933 in Borroloola in Northern Australia, his mother was Aboriginal and his father was a white policeman called Langdon. When Wally was taken from his mum, he was given the name MacArthur rather than Langdon because the authorities did not want to acknowledge that his father was a white policeman. In 1988, Wally told John Pilger how he had been kidnapped. It was in a government car because only the government had cars at the time. The driver put me in the front seat with him and he drove around while I waved at my family. I'd never seen them since, you know. They were sitting around the campfire. They didn't understand what was happening. Wally was taken to a Church of England mission in Alice Springs. As a teenager, he was moved to Western Sydney and then on to the St Francis Mission House at Semaphore, a suburb of Adelaide in South Australia. It was in Adelaide that Wally's sporting career took off. In 1948, he ran the world's fastest 440 yards for his age and in 1951, he became the South Australian under-19 100 and 220 yards champion. Despite this, he was left out of the South Australian Athletics team for the National Championships. Wally protested and was told that he could go, but only if he paid his own fare. Fortunately, an unknown well-wisher paid for his ticket and Wally was able to compete. He promptly won the National Under-19 100 Yards Championship, confirming a growing opinion that Wally was a very good prospect for the 1952 Olympic Games in Helsinki. But he was not selected for the Olympics. At that time, no Aboriginal athlete had ever been chosen for an Australian Olympic squad and this probably led Wally to conclude that he could have gone no further in the world of amateur athletics. So in 1953, he became a professional sprinter. He won his first 10 races, but then soon abandoned athletics to concentrate on his other great sport in love, rugby league. Wally had learned rugby league at Penrith High School and continued to play when the boys were moved to Adelaide. Although South Australia is one of the heartlands of Aussie rules football, in those days Semaphore had its own rugby league side, one of five clubs in the small South Australian rugby league. One of three Aboriginal players in his team, Wally was voted the league's best and fairest player in 1952. So it was no surprise when rugby league scout Paul Quinn 
a former Rochdale player working in Adelaide, signed him to play in England for Rochdale Hornets. In November 1953, Wally flew from Sydney Airport to join the club. When he arrived in Rochdale a few days later, his signing was described as almost unbelievable by the local press. He made his debut for Hornets on the 12th of December against Salford, playing on the right wing and scoring three goals. In August 1954, he started the new season with a bang by equaling the club record for most points in a match in the opening game against Blackpool, when he scored three tries and kicked eight goals for a total of 25 points. These early months of the 1954-55 season were the high point of his Hornets career. He struggled for consistency in a poorly performing side. He was given a raw deal on the field of play, recalled Hornets supporter John Lang. The crowd expected too much of him. He was given the ball with no room to work in. It was a fault of those in charge of the team. Disillusioned by the way he had been treated by the club, in January 1915, Wally asked for a transfer and was set to join Warrington, the current league leaders and the previous season's Championship and Challenge Cup winners. The prospect of seeing Wally on the opposite wing to the immortal Brian Bevan was enough to make even non-Warrington fans salivate. But contract negotiations stalled, and instead Wally signed for Blackpool, who had only joined the league in 1954 and were looking for a headline name to boost their crowds. There was just one problem. While Warrington sat on top of the league table, Blackpool were rock bottom last, having won just two of their previous 24 matches. In hindsight, it was a complete mistake. Blackpool were struggling to attract spectators and couldn't afford to pay Wally the money they had promised him. Within 12 months, he had again requested a move and the club transfer listed him at £1,500. Despite being dogged by niggling injuries and limited by the poor form of the club, Wally still managed to score 20 tries and 37 goals in his two and a half seasons there. But in June 1957, Wally joined Salford, the club that had wanted to sign Frank Fisher in 1936. Although by then the Red Devils were a decidedly mid-table team, in his first season Wally scored 22 tries and kicked 73 goals. The first season at Salford were the best in Wally's career, but in September 1958 it seemed he would finally get his chance with a top club when Workington Town, who had been the previous season's runners-up in the Championship and the Challenge Cup final, bought him for £3,000. Sadly, Wally was let down by fate again. In his first season, the club crashed to 20th in the league, just two places above Salford. Even so, he still managed to score 15 tries and 18 goals. But in August 1959, he had become so frustrated at his bad luck with British clubs that he decided to go home and he applied for a clearance certificate to play professional rugby league in Australia. However, Workington objected. And by October, Wally was back in Adelaide. He never received a clearance certificate and he never played top flight rugby league again. Wally's career was over, but he had blazed a trail for dozens of other Aboriginal Australians to come and show their skills in Britain. Indeed, the next player to come was Wally's cousin Jim Foster, who had grown up with him in the mission homes. Encouraged by Wally, he came over in 1955 and played one match for Wigan. In 1967, future kangaroo George Amburn spent a season at Bradford, scoring 15 tries before moving back to North Sydney. In 1968, Artie Beetson played 12 games for Hull KR before breaking a leg in the last ever Christmas Day derby match with Hull. The 1980s were the golden era for Aboriginal players in British rugby league. John Ferguson's single year at Wigan still reverberates today, and Steve Ellis' season at Central Park meant that he probably left Britain with a reputation even larger than the one he had acquired at home. Ronnie Gibbs made an unforgettable impact at Castleford, 
while at Leeds, Cliff Lines demonstrated that the delicate arts of the standoff had not been crushed under the weight of game plans and structured sets of six. And what Halifax supporter does not remember the great Joe Kilroy, fullback of their 1986 championship winning side? Tony Curry, whose grandfather had been an Aboriginal League star in the 1930s, also starred for Leeds in the 1980s and then went on to blaze another new trail by coaching the London Broncos from 1996 to 98, guiding them to their highest ever league position. These players all trod the path that had been pioneered by Wally MacArthur. Wally died in 2015, and although he never achieved the honours his football talents deserved, his memory is imprinted on the minds of all those British rugby league supporters who were lucky enough to have seen him play. Wally MacArthur's story is proof of the fact that sometimes, greatness in sport is about more than what simply happens on the field of play. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.